Welcome once again to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. Again, I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I am the Chief Compliance Officer with Rick and Benny Associates here in North Carolina. I'm on the clear board of directors, as well as the current chair of the National Certified Investigative Training Committee and vice chair of the annual conference program committee with CLEAR. As many of you may know, the Council on Licensure, Enforcement, and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. Our podcast is a chance for you to hear about the latest and greatest in our community, and today I am joined by some presenters for a session in the administration, legislation, and policy track at the upcoming CLEAR Annual Education Conference this September in Minneapolis. We'd like to give you a sneak peek kind of of what is in store for this session, and that session in particular is called Rare Events with Catastrophic Impact, Lessons from Cases Involving International Harm to Patients. I welcome Laura Kinkart uh, with uh, Weirfolds uh, LLP, Christine uh, Braithwaite with the Professional Standards Authority in the UK, and David Benton with the National Council on State Boards of Nursing. I'm glad to have you with us today. Welcome. I'd like to be here. Excellent. Well, um, again, I really appreciate you guys joining me today. Uh, since we have three speakers, I'll kind of um, call out maybe a, uh, a first question to, to Laura, um, and, and then maybe each of you can kind of respond to the same question. Um, first, Laura, why should we be concerned about healthcare providers who intentionally harm or kill their patients, other than the obvious? <laughs> but um, isn't it extremely rare? Well, it, it is extremely rare, but uh, it's actually not as rare as you might assume. Here in Ontario, the Long-Term Care Homes Public Inquiry just released its final report and recommendation on July 31st. And this was a public inquiry that was called to look into the offenses committed by Elizabeth Wetlaufer. And she was a nurse who worked in Ontario's long-term care system and was convicted of murdering eight patients in her care and attempting to kill or seriously harm six others. And just while our inquiry was underway between 2017 and 2019, two more healthcare workers were arrested for intentionally killing their patients, one in the UK and one in Japan. And while the long-term care home inquiry was going on here in Ontario, um, it actually heard evidence about the literature and research that's been done into healthcare workers who intentionally kill their patients, which the literature has actually dubbed these people healthcare serial killers. Um, and what's surprising is that there are actually documented cases going back to the 1800s, and since 1970, there have been 90 convicted healthcare serial killers in the Western world, including Europe, the US, and now in Canada with Elizabeth Wetlaufer. And just from those 90 people, they've been convicted of killing 450 patients and assaulting or causing serious bodily harm to 150 others. But when you step back, the total number of suspicious deaths that have been attributed to these people is actually closer to 2,600, which is a fair number of patients. So is it yeah. rare? Absolutely. But as we've just seen here in Ontario, the magnitude of the harm caused when one of these cases does come up is enormous, not only for the victims and their loved ones, obviously, but also to the public trust in the healthcare system and in healthcare regulators. Yeah, I'm, I'm, hello, it's Christine. Um, I would just like to echo that, and I, I would agree that it's, it's not as rare as we would like. 
um, just for example, here in the United Kingdom, between 2000 and 2005, we had six um, public inquiry reports into the actions of people who caused intentional harm. But, but I think instead of looking at the number, we really just do need to stay focused on the scale of the impact. Um, for example, in the UK here, we had a, um, a man called Clifford Ayling who worked as a uh, clinical assistant in obstetric, obstetrics and gynecology and also as a general practitioner over a period of about 30 years and concerns about his um, sexual behavior towards the women he was examining started to emerge in the early 1970s, and he wasn't convicted of it until 2000. He had multiple victims in multiple locations. Uh, and although there were 12 counts of assault on 10 patients, there were a further 14 cases left to lie on file. And I think if you read the inquiry report, you can see that actually the magnitude of the harm that was caused was highly likely to have been much more extensive than that. Uh, if we look at the, the fam one of the famous cases in the UK, the Harold Shipman case, uh, I mean, he was convicted of 15 murders, but he was estimated to have committed somewhere in the region of 250. Um, we also had uh, another gynecologist, uh, Rodney Ledwood. Uh, he uh, was subject to complaints from 550 women and was found to have botched 418 operations. Um, and he was actually under investigation the second time at the time of his death for sexual abuse um, as well. So there's the impact in terms of the patient and obviously all of the families too. But the other area I think that is important for regulators to be focused on is what's the impact of it on their on colleagues. Um, there, are, there are several impacts on those who are working alongside people who cause intentionally harm. And firstly, they tend to be aware that something is wrong within the system. So either consciously or unconsciously, they react by maybe monitoring the person a bit more and also having to or trying to ameliorate their impact. So whether that's by um, undertaking actions to try and correct something that they think they've, they've done wrong. Uh, but there are also um, what, what are termed in the literature bonds of transgression. So let's say you have a consultant, as Rodney Ledwood was, in a senior position who's working alongside junior doctors and others they start to cover for one another again, consciously and unconsciously. Uh, Ailing and Ledwood, interestingly, worked together, uh, actually, for a, a short period of time. The, the other thing that gets talked about a lot in the literature and certainly exercises um, judges and others when they're leading the inquiries is what sometimes is called a conspiracy of silence. Um, an alternative view of that is to view it not as a conspiracy of silence and not as a deliberate getting together of health professionals in order not to allow the truth to come forward, but actually it's a form of cultural censorship in which there's a kind of unspoken but tacit acceptance that we don't talk about these types of things. Uh, and often health professionals feel themselves to be put in a very ethically and morally dif um, difficult position, um, and they suffer themselves all sorts of emotional reactions. So one nurse, for example, in an inquiry when asked why she hadn't said anything, said, because I'm a coward. And living with those kind of feelings is not easy for people either. So there is that side. And we've done some work, um, quite a lot, a lot of work now in the UK, trying to understand why it is, from a psychological perspective, various um, health practitioners get themselves in trouble in front of fitness to practice panels. Uh, and Professor Rossell published a very interesting report, which if you haven't seen, I would commend to you, which um, she called Bad Apples, Bad Barrels, Bad Sellers. And what, what Ross says essentially from a regulator's perspective is, is that, yes, it's important to think about the traits, 
but it's also important to think about the uh, context in which they're working. And with the bad barrel, she suggests that there are two types of bad barrels, or what she calls corrupting barrels, and then there are what she calls depleting barrels. And the um, corrupting barrels are the ones where people adopt the bad behaviors deliberately in some cases. So if, if people are working within a climate in which sexual abuse is prevalent, for example, they are more likely, if they are so inclined, to feel that, that they, it's okay for them to do that too. And then there's depleting barrels, which is where people kind of become exhausted and drained by everything that's going on around them, uh, and, and their standards slip and they engage in poor practice too. So um, it's important to focus on the scale of impact. Well, that's, that's understood. Um, uh, David, I'd like to hear your thoughts, although now I'm starting to think it may be not that extremely rare, um, probably uh, more often well, I, than I, people I, die from yeah. shark, shark attacks. <laughs> Well, let's start with some, some facts, first of all. I mean, first of all, research in this topic is relatively recent, and and the research that is available, um, there's not a huge amount about it. And if you think about the number of individuals that are uh, being identified uh, compared to the number of services that are offered, we are actually talking about a very small percentage. But as my colleagues have indicated, uh, the impact of this is, is really catastrophic, um, not just for the individuals, but their families, uh, for the systems that these individuals uh, often work in, uh, and of course, their, their colleagues that are part, part of that. Um, I think part of the problem that we are seeing is that patients are sicker, and in today's society, families are much more fragmented, and therefore often individuals are receiving treatment in isolation from their normal peer support. So the ability to recognize pattern and to identify at an early stage the particularly vulnerable patient um, is, is problematic. Um, you know, the intensity of healthcare these, these days is, is so great that the time that people have in institutions is often very short, and therefore the ability to simply uh, spot that, you know, a particular practitioner is always on duty when one of these events, a death occurs, for example, um, is, is becoming much more complex in terms of just pattern recognition itself. And therefore, we, we need to be much more um, agile and vigilant in terms of actually thinking about these things. Um, obviously, um, the majority of managers um, in the health services, wherever they may be, whether they be in community settings or in, in large um, hospitals, are unlikely to, to come across such an event. And indeed, regulators themselves are, will probably only see uh, one or possibly two of these cases in their entire career. So this does actually mean that we need to think about how do we prepare people to be ready to, to, to deal with this when such a, an incident would occur. The, the one thing that is sure, um, if you have to deal with one of these cases, as a, as a regulator, um, is that the, there is additional costs to the system. Um, there is huge stresses on the leadership of the organization. And in terms of dealing with the media and preparing uh, for this, uh, you just simply cannot be well enough prepared because there's always something that will put you on the spot at some point. So um, yes, it is relatively rare relative to the care that is delivered globally, but when it happens, um, it is a catastrophic event for all. 
certainly. Well, uh, I guess let me ask this, and, and maybe I'll direct this uh, to Christine first, and then you guys can each kind of weigh in. Um, are there processes that regulators can put in place to help minimize the chances of actual intentional harm occurring? To minimize the chances of intentional harm occurring, I think um, is difficult for a regulator beyond setting the standards that they would do normally and beyond making sure that the training that people provide and the training placements and so on are good. And I, and I think the reason why it's quite difficult for a regulator to do that is that they don't have control over the workplace. Um, I, I will, we'll move on later to consider how people work together, but, but I think that's the main thing, because what, what you see when you look across these particular type of cases is that the perpetrators uh, tend to be working in environments in which there are staff shortages, there is a lack of supervision. Um, there are all sorts of pressures on the system, which means quite often that the, the contribution that the person makes is seen as being very valuable, and that helps to bolster people's confidence in them and allows them to get away the kind of things that they do. So I, I think the uh, amount of direct influence that a regulator has over intentional harm is um, quite difficult for them. Um, I, I think that uh, having a good a good relationship and good uh, channels of communication between regulators and between the workplaces in which um, registrants are is helpful because it starts to make it easier for people to have conversations and begin to say, so I'm a bit worried about this. Can we talk this one through and you tell me whether I'm right to be concerned or not? Now that starts to bring in all sorts of things around how and when you use soft intelligence. And I think regulators need to think about that. Um, I, I think one of the things that I, um, that's really come through from this, and I take David's point absolutely about the difficulty, is you're probably only going to maybe come across one or two of these cases in the course of your career. But it's about the mindset of staff who are investigating, and that's about really developing a very inquisitive mindset and not taking things at face value. I always remember a police trainer Saying, saying once upon a time that the, when they train the police, they, they teach them ABC, which means assume nothing, believe nobody, and check everything. And I, and I think that, that helps in relation to this. Uh, and it, it's, it's a good discipline to have, not just in relation to spotting these really um, in high-level intentional harm cases, but I think it's also simply good discipline in terms of investigating any kind of cases, particularly whether there have been things like clinical incompetence and so on happening that if you have that mindset from the start, you're more likely to be open to the possibility of intentional harm and more likely to be prepared to think the unthinkable. So I would like to build on, on that. Um, you know, Christine identified the, the importance of the relationship between the regulator and the employer, but I would like to stress the importance of the fact that regulators uh, need to work together on some of these issues as well so that there's a consistency of message. We know that healthcare is increasingly a, a team-based acti team activity, therefore ensuring that um, there are discussions between the different um, health regulators as part of consistency of message so that there is less confusion and a faster flow of information is also important. We know that um, Regulators now are increasingly collaborating together. They are coming out with 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 joint statements, and you know this is, as I said, a, a rare event. And therefore, 
um, there is some real value in collaborating together and pooling uh, intelligence and information so that there can be uh, joint uh, standards set on some of these issues because invariably there will be other disciplines involved as part of, of, of the investigation anyway and therefore a consistency of approach is really important. Um, regulators also need to work very closely with their staff to educate them uh, to be vigilant and to consider um, these things as, as part of their, their process. That's not to, to overreact, but to really have a systematic approach to this in a way that does um, really validate everything that's happening in there and, and think that you know, the impossible could in fact happen and therefore not to reject it out of hand, but to really investigate it in a very structured way. Um, if you do have a case that you are suspicious of, then I think regulators also need to have a very clear fast track procedure uh, to deal with these serious allegations, uh, to know who they need to talk to, not just within the healthcare system, but also within the criminal justice system as well, because the, the detection of this can come from different angles and knowing who the various actors are that have an interest in this so that you uh, really have a very streamlined approach um, that actually progresses the inquiry as quickly as possible uh, and prevents further harm happening. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what uh, Christine and, and David have said. Um, and they've both alluded to um, the importance of ensuring that irregulator staff, and in particular its investigation staff, are alert to the possibility that an incident could be the result of intentional harm. Um, because I think that is something that uh, many of us don't even think of. Um, and so if investigators are alert to some of the risk factors that have been associated with known cases, uh, that can be a good starting place. So for example, um, have colleagues expressed suspicion or concern? Has the healthcare worker changed jobs frequently? Are you dealing with a case involving patients that are particularly vulnerable, like very young, very old, with cognitive impairments? Has there been a pattern of unexpected deaths or an unexpected deterioration in patients' health conditions? Uh, and in particular, has that been happening on shifts where the healthcare professional you're looking at tends to be working alone or with less supervision, like on the night shift? Um, so obviously, that, those are not foolproof, but they are uh, factors that have been associated with many previous cases that investigators should, should be aware of just so that they know that these are factors that sometimes do come up in these cases. I think one thing that can be tempting is to try to profile people and to say, well, if you have a healthcare worker that fits this certain profile, we need to pay attention to them because they're more likely to harm patients. But the research shows there's not really any easy way to determine ahead of time which healthcare professional may go on to deliberately harm their patients. So there isn't a consistent profile across the healthcare professionals who have been convicted of intentionally harming or intentionally killing their patients. So, for example, profiling at the registration stage isn't going to be all that useful. But what Christine and David have both touched on 
And it was one of the major lessons that came out of the inquiry into Elizabeth Wetlocker here in Ontario was the importance of ensuring all those in the healthcare system, uh, so regulators, employers, and the healthcare professionals themselves, um, they need to be aware that it's possible for a healthcare professional to intentionally harm their patients. And if that is something that you're aware of as a possibility, then you're more likely to pick up on it if the worst case scenario happens and it does come up. Another thing that uh, can be helpful, although it's, it's not always practical, um, is if you are dealing with a system where there's an ability to collect data about deaths or sudden changes in condition, there have been cases in the past where um, one of these people have been caught because of significant spikes in deaths associated with their shift. Um, with that said, it tends to be large healthcare employers who have the ability to gather data and analyze trends like this, like large public hospitals. It doesn't tend to be the regulators right. themselves. Um, but if that is uh, something that's possible, that, that can be helpful. Well, let me, um, that's interesting. Let me go to David now. Obviously, you can revoke a license or the ability to, to practice, but are there any other things that regulators can do specifically in the healthcare system to help protect patients from these, uh, you know, lack of a better term, rogue practitioners? Well, I think one of the things that we need to think about is how do we learn from other high-risk industries in terms of how they mitigate risk? And um, there was a publication that came out ago, it's quite a while ago now, it's almost 20 years ago, from the chief, the then chief medical officer of the United Kingdom, Kingdom called An Organization with a Memory. And that was really about systems failures and how um, different parts of the system tolerate uh, levels of risk. And then when it all comes together, um, this is this is when these catastrophic events can occur because there's a set of, of consequences that are, that are put in play. And I, I do believe that looking at uh, not just within the healthcare regulatory family, but actually looking more widely as to how we can mitigate some of these catastrophic events can be helpful. Certainly, the recommendations that came up from the expert group on an organization with a memory, many of them are very, very relevant to how you would mitigate uh, this, this situation of potential serial killers. It's about the way that information flows. It's about early detection. It's about a culture of reflection and learning. And I think that's part of what we need to do as well. So not just simply uh, look internally, but actually look externally as to what we can we can learn from others. We can certainly, um, as, a, as a community of regulators, as I said, it's a very uh, rare event, and therefore the importance of us all sharing our experiences once obviously due process has been followed um, is important because we can learn from the experiences of others. We can learn from the mistakes of others and to acknowledge the things that we might want to do differently um, uh, to, to, uh, to avoid uh, either delay um, or upset that can be caused in some of these very uh, emotionally charged discussions. Um, I think the other thing that we also need to rem remember is that as a regulator, um, as the chief executive or the executive officer of a regulatory body, 
it's a very lonely job. Um, and therefore, having an established network of trusted peers that you can actually turn to at these times for both confidential moral um, and uh, advice in terms of how you might deal with some of these things, acting as a sounding board is also an important point to consider. Now, obviously, there are uh, potential difficulties with that because uh, if you're in the middle of an investigation, et cetera, you, you cannot share the detail. But the ability to, to reflect uh, on some of these issues and actually think this through uh, ahead of time, um, how did it work for you when this happened, um, again, is, a, I think, a, a, an important point in preparing um, and getting ahead of um, the, 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 these issues. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, to build on that, um, to the extent that regulators have um, have involvement in developing best practices or guidelines for for those in the sector, I think that's a real opportunity to spread awareness, to emphasize the importance of good processes, and as David said, to uh, improve information sharing. Um, so, in terms of awareness, we've we've already talked about the need to make sure people are aware that uh, intentional harm is something that needs to be considered. Um, and so when it comes to a regulator's role, um, if, if you're a regulator that uh, helps develop or deliver ongoing professional development content, you can play a role in encouraging that awareness by, for example, incorporating discussions about intentional harm into learnings about professionalism or assessing risk or other relevant topics like that. Um, and it's also important to ensure that healthcare professionals and employers understand their reporting obligations. So for example, here in Ontario, um, regulated health professionals have to report when there's um, evidence that a patient has been sexually abused by another healthcare professional. But when it comes to non-sexual abuse, um, that may be something that under the standards you need to report, but it's not a mandatory reporting obligation under the legislation. And so um, there's often some confusion about, do I have to report this? To whom do I report it? So I think just doing something as simple as clarifying um, to the professionals you regulate what you expect them to report and when can go a long way. And then in terms of processes, uh, most cases uh, involving intentional killing by healthcare professionals have involved uh, the use of medications as a weapon. So one thing a regulator can do is um, help put out guidelines uh, that encourage a, a strong approach to analyzing medication errors. So for example, by encouraging the use of an incident analysis framework that involves the consideration of intentional harm. And that just makes it more likely you'll pick up on cases like this at an earlier stage. Another thing we heard a lot about during the inquiry into Elizabeth Wettlaufer was the importance of encouraging a just culture philosophy when it comes to medication errors. Uh, and that's an approach that doesn't seek to blame the person involved when they make a medication error, uh, but it views errors as a learning opportunity. And the research shows that that increases instances of self-reporting and reporting of errors by colleagues. So when everyone understands that reporting is expected, it's a positive thing, uh, it increases the odds that an employer uh, and the regulator will learn of errors that 
may be caused intentionally. So um, I think there's just two things that I'd like to pick up on here. So, so the first in terms of what regulators might do to work with others within the, the health system, um, I think it's important for them to work with system regulators to address the contextual factors. We, we know from the literature that whilst traits are an important component, the um, contextual factors can actually moderate their prevalence. So ideally, I suppose I would see a system in which professional regulators are working alongside system regulators and vice versa. So the system regulators are checking the kind of factors that we know impact on health professionals' uh, ability both to meet and apply the standards, but also to reduce the opportunity for intentional harm to, um, for intentional harm to take place. Uh, the, the second aspect is uh, actually to increase patient agency. So um, I, we've done some work recently looking at what is the role of a patient in maintaining their own safety um, rather than them just simply having to rely on health professionals to keep themselves safe. What is it that they, they can do themselves to help improve that? Uh, and I think that takes some work with patient organizations to help look at ways to do that. We know that um, we heard from David that, that actually the likelihood is these days that people are being treated in places for short periods of time, maybe not with their family members around. So what happens when they don't have anybody else there to advocate for them? How, how will that, that system be uh, put in place? Uh, and what could be done both to redress the sort of the power imbalance and the asymmetry of influence? In the case of Clifford Ayling, for example, um, he was often targeting young women he was targeting women, um, many of whom it was their first their first experience of childbirth. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was going to happen with regard to the health procedures. And um, you, you can see this time and time and again in inquiries in which patients are kind of self-critical and doubt themselves as to, well, maybe that's just normal. Maybe that's just a standard procedure. Maybe I shouldn't make a fuss about it. And that, of course, can be um, can be re reinforced by the reactions of some other health professionals around them when those health professionals are also finding it difficult to think that their colleague could possibly be doing the unthinkable. So I think that's another, another focus for um, regulators to think about and probably one we haven't thought about to any very great extent, but it's definitely one that we should be focusing on in the future. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's finish with one uh, kind of final question. Um, I guess if, if a worst-case scenario happens where um, maybe a regulator does learn about that one of its regulators or registrants or licensees has intentionally harmed or, or killed um, a patient or patient. What can regulators do to help navigate the increased uh, public scrutiny that often results from something like this, uh, as I would imagine? Well, I think one maybe obvious thing, but it's important, is to work with your communications team to reassure the public that they're safe. Um, because as we talked about it, at the beginning, one of the really serious effects of a case like this is when it does happen, um, it really shakes the public trust in the system. And given that we're all in the business of protecting the public, um, reassuring the public that uh, they're safe is uh, one of the top priorities. Um, the other thing you'll probably have to do is to devote resources to cooperating with any law enforcement investigations that are going on. and coordinating that process to make sure that um, you're doing what you need to do, but you're not uh, interfering with any criminal investigation that's going on at the same time. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that uh, if it is one of those cases that leads to 
a public inquiry. Um, that often requires significant resources, and um, if a regulator is involved in that, they may they may need additional staff support dedicated to that process because uh, public inquiries tend to be very long, they tend to be very resource intensive, um, and and you may need additional support for that. Yeah, and I think I would I'd add to that um, the importance of having liaison people in in two ways. So one is. I think it's important, particularly where there have been multiple incidents, that there is um, an, a sort of a chief investigator appointed within the regulator who oversees the multiple incidents, if there are multiple incidents, so that the connections between those cases aren't lost in any way. Um, and also to think about whether or not there may be other cases that haven't come to light yet, or whether it might, might cause the regulator to need to think about um, whether there are other health professionals whose actions might also need to... Uh, be looked at, given, given what I said earlier about bonds of transgression. Um, and then the second, uh, the second thing I think that is is really critical is to support patients and witnesses well and make sure that they're given that they are kept really well informed throughout the whole process. Um, ideally, they should be given a name person within the regulator with whom they can uh, get in touch, um, both proactively and and um, and in response to any communication from the regulator too. And I think those two things are really important in terms of um, helping to maintain and to rebuild trust if there's that and I'll just add one one final point to it and that's for the regulator themselves to make sure that they're being open and transparent and honest and so if a regulator has made a mistake or is being slow in dealing with something like that I think it's really important that um, you know the regulator models the behavior they expect of their registrants and, and that it's upfront about that. Um. I would I would want to amplify a little bit about the, the points that Lara made in relation to communication. Um, the last thing that you want to do is to go and get media training in the middle of all of this. You really need to be prepared. And therefore, one of the things that I would certainly advocate for is that whoever your spokesperson is, that they are regularly updated in terms of their, their media uh, skills as part, as part of a, 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 pro, a proactive approach. Um, not all regulators have the authority to speak publicly. Some are part of agencies, and therefore knowing how uh, communication flows within your own um, agency and knowing who the spokesperson will be is also really important. And the type of briefing that they will need to make the point, if you're not able to, to obviously do it yourself, you need to make sure that those key points um, are given to the, the into the hands of whoever the person is that's actually going to be speaking to the, the public and the media as part of this process as well. Um, I think obviously be as transparent as possible, but there are often uh, things that cannot be said at a particular point of time, but be really clear about that on, on why that you're why you're not actually given information at that point of time and, and, and make it clear that you know, uh, once once it is possible to do that, you will come back to them and certainly do it. Um, I think the other thing that can often happen when there is more than one uh, or more than a couple of cases is that the public themselves start to think about their loved ones that have perhaps passed and wonder whether or not um, their uh, family member could have been the victim as well. And therefore, thinking about not just psychological support for those that have been directly affected by this, but think about how you have mechanisms in place as a helpline or whatever. Um, it potentially gives you additional information that you may need to investigate, but also 
you're prepared to actually handle that issue as well. And, and you know, one of the things that I think um, is always very good to do is really in the media training sessions is get, get the uh, worst case scenarios really pushed so that you're ready to deal with those. There's nothing worse than just simply saying no comment. Um, it, it really does um, vexate the, the media, the public as well. It's a mechanism that often uh, loses confidence and therefore having ways of dealing with those really tricky questions uh, ahead of time will enable you to get your message across, reassure the public, uh, and deal with this in a professional and effective manner. Well, very good. Well, I want to take a, a moment just to thank uh, Laura, Christine, and David for your time and, and being a part of this podcast. I think it's always a, a great opportunity um, to, to share and learn from each other. And, and with this being one of the, the sessions for the AEC this September, I, I actually look forward to, to checking out that and hearing a little bit more about it. So again, thank you for speaking to me today. Um, and I also want to thank our listeners. And we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. You know, please subscribe to our podcast. It's available on Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or TuneIn. So it's a lot of different areas for you to, to, to be able to hear this. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please leave a rating or a comment in the app. Um, that helps us improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free also to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming training programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson, our content coordinator and editor for this program. I'm Lyne Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.